They say before you die that your life flashes before your eyes. I don't know how we know that because I would assume that everybody who's had life flashed before their eyes goes on to die, but that's what they say. Maybe you've had a near-death experience and, and can testify that this is true or not true. But in that moment, they say that the joys and the pains and the sorrows and the victories, all of it just comes rushing through in just a second. As we look at Jesus' death tonight in Matthew 27, I can't say whether or not Jesus' life flashed before his eyes. But I can say that at the moment of Jesus' death, we see flashes of his life. And that's the theme that I want to focus on this evening. As we reflect on Jesus' death for us, I want to see how his death is really a snapshot of his life. I'm going to do this through three words this evening. And the first is we see misery. Now, it's not that Jesus lived a miserable life. There were times of joys and sorrows and hardship and victory, just like all of our lives. But if you look at the life that he lived, it's not what you would expect when God becomes a man. You would expect him to be born into royalty in a, in a city where he could have high influence, where he could be in this ultimate position to overthrow the oppressors of, of, of Rome. But instead, we see him born in a manger, grow up in Nowheresville, Nazareth, have a ministry among the masses, not the who's who's, and spend time mostly teaching and healing, and for the most part, homeless. He was no stranger to pain. It's part of the human experience. He stubbed his toes and he smashed his fingers with hammers and he had headaches and the cold and the flu. For many of us, those are about the extent of the pain that we will feel on a regular basis. But of course, his crucifixion takes it to a whole nother level. It's so painful that none of the gospel writers really go into great detail of what this process entailed. They simply say, then they led him away to be crucified. Part of that is that there's no need for their audience to know, to describe it in such a way. They knew full well what a crucifixion was. But the other part was that crucifixion was so heinous and so disturbing that it's not something that they want to talk about. It was designed to, to kill its victims eventually, but to keep them alive as long as possible to prolong the process. They found such ways to attach victims to the cross without damaging any major organs, without causing excessive blood loss to the point where they could linger on the cross for days. As they hung for this long, nature would begin to play its part. As this debilitating pain and thirst took over, insects would begin to burrow into the open wounds. Birds and animals often chose to feast on the victims before they were dead. But crucifixion was not the only time that Jesus felt pain in his life. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent, reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Crucifixion wasn't the only time that Jesus felt pain. He felt the pain of disappointment and anger and betrayal and the sting and grief of loss. And even though he was God's own son, he went through pain so that ultimately one day we might not have to. You see, the physical misery was not the only pain that he felt that day on the cross. There was also the misery of bearing the weight of our sin. 
Paul says it perfectly in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the cross shows us Jesus' misery. The misery in taking on the pain as part of the human experience, but also the pain of our sinfulness. His life, though, not only was mirrored in misery, but also in this moment in the mockery. When you think of crucifixion, you might think first of the pain, and that's a fair first thought. Literally, the word we have, excruciating, comes from this phrase, out of the cross. There's a whole word describing what this pain was like. But crucifixion had more than one purpose. Yes, it had the purpose of inflicting pain, but it also had the purpose of inflicting humiliation. Roman rhetorician Quintilian says, Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to exemplarily effect. In other words, he's saying crucifixion is, is not a punishment that fits the crime. It is designed to be as painful and as shameful as possible to be a deterrent. Others might see those who are crucified and, and say, you know, don't let what happened to this guy happen to you. And so there's this, this twofold humiliation, of course. The one from being executed, being stripped naked, being hanged in the sight of the crowds, being regarded as a criminal, unable to restrain from your most basic bodily functions in public and subjected to excruciating torture. But it also serves as this grim reminder for those passing by of what happened to those who set themselves up in opposition to Rome. Jesus' crucifixion was particularly humiliating as all kinds of groups systematically mock him. The soldiers mock him. The Sanhedrin and crowd call out to him, taunt him to come down to save himself. Those who hang on the cross heaped insults upon him, next to him. From the lowly criminals to the high priests, people from all walks of life hurl insults and mock our Savior. But this mockery, this rejection, this humiliation was not just present at his death. Throughout much of his life and his ministry, Jesus faced these same attitudes. Religious leaders who rejected him because he didn't conform to their expectations. Because he hung out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Because he didn't follow their stringent extra rules regarding the Sabbath. Or endorse their unjust practices. And even times amongst the crowds, Jesus would face this rejection. In Mark 6, Jesus returns to his hometown. And they say, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does these miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. In other words, they're saying, we know this boy. We know where he came from. Who does he think he is? John 6, Jesus preaches one of his most controversial sermons talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, the all-consuming nature of what it means to follow him. And it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus lived a life characterized by rejection. 
Matthew's entire gospel rests in the shadow of the cross, which culminates in the ultimate rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, I think looking at Matthew's account of the crucifixion, it seems so depressing, and rightfully so. But I think in the way Matthew arranges it, it seems like he's trying to make it more depressing. We see all of these realities of Jesus' life mirrored in his death. And it's easy to feel defeated in this moment. We see Jesus live this human experience of misery and go through the ultimate physical pain and punishment, bearing the full weight of our sin. And yet, not just misery, but mockery. This rejection that characterized his life and culminated in his death. But there's one last word that characterizes Jesus' life and death. And it's a word with which we so often choose to describe our Savior's life and death on this moment in the cross. It's the word victory. I find it interesting the way Matthew describes the death of Jesus. He says that he gave up his spirit. He doesn't say, finally, under blood, loss, and shock, Jesus died. He doesn't say he could no longer endure and was overcome by death. He doesn't say he was passed on, passed away, expired, croaked, kicked the bucket, bought the farm. He says, no, he gave up his spirit. Crucifixion, which was designed to keep its victims alive for as long as possible, days and days on end. And yet, scarcely six hours in, Jesus dies. And not just dies, but gives up his spirit. Even in the face of the misery and mockery, Jesus is in control. And that grants him the victory. Death did not take him by surprise. He predicted it three times throughout the Gospels. He knew who would do it, how it would be done. And though, yes, despairing and depressing, it is Jesus, not Rome, not the Sanhedrin, not Satan, not even death itself that has the control. Just look at this amazing testimony of nature itself. The earth shook and the rocks split. It says certain holy people came out of their tombs and after his resurrection, they went into the towns evangelizing, sharing the good news. And then Matthew tells us something kind of weird. He says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now look at that and think, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, Matthew, Jesus is dead. Supernatural darkness has covered the land for three hours. There's an earthquake. Rocks have split. Dead bodies have been brought back to life. And you give us this weird commentary on the drapery in the temple. But it's not just any curtain. It's a huge curtain. In fact, huge is an understatement. This curtain is 60 feet wide and 30 feet high and 4 inches thick. It's the curtain that separated the holy place, the part where the priests performed their daily duties from the most holy place, where only the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement and approach the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God on earth. On the surface, we see that this veil tore so that we could have access to God through Jesus' death. Not just the high priest, not just certain individuals, but all of us have access to God. I think there's another reason. While it's supposed to be only the high priest, there's one other person in history that we know of that entered that most holy place. In the year 63 BC, Jerusalem was conquered by Rome. 
Roman general Pompey wanted to make his victory known to show that the power of Rome outmatched the power of their God. And so he did the most vile thing any Jew could possibly imagine. This Roman general, this idolatrous Gentile, marched into the temple, through the courts, through the holy place, right into the most holy place. The place reserved for the high priest. And you know what he found? Absolutely nothing. Well, he found one thing. He found that the Israelites had lost the Ark of the Covenant in the exile. And so every year, once a year, the high priest would go in and sprinkle nothing for centuries. It had been a sham. There was no ark to sprinkle. And so we ask, why did the veil tear? I think it was to make known to everybody that God was no longer in that place. Victory and knowing that God did not choose to just live among people tucked away in one room. And we have victory in knowing that God no longer dwells in buildings made by human hands, but has come to actually dwell among us as one of us. Even when it would mean pain and humiliation and now live inside of us through His Spirit. We see victory in knowing that God loved us so much that He wanted to be with us in a greater way than walled away in a temple. He wanted to live among us. And even more than living among us, He was willing to die for us. And so tonight, we're going to end a little bit differently. We're going to end with communion. I'm going to have the men that are going to serve come up now. But as I said in the beginning of this service, I want you to live in this tension. As we reflect on Good Friday and the price that Jesus paid for us, enduring misery, enduring mockery, enduring all of that, the suffering and the pain and the humiliation. We also reflect on the victory. That he was in control that entire time, giving up his spirit so that we might have life in him. Our king has the victory. He bore the weight of our sin and shame so that we might have a relationship with him. We're going to end a little bit differently. As we take this communion, I want you just to stay where you are in your seats for a time. Take this moment to reflect. And take as long as you want. Joel's going to be up here playing some music for us. And when you're done, I just ask you to quietly kind of exit so those who are still sitting and reflecting might be able to do so. As we go out from this place, I want you to live in the tension of this day, of the victory of the cross, but also what Jesus went through on our behalf. Let's pray. Father God, we are in awe of what Jesus has done for us. And we take tonight especially to reflect on what he went through on that cross. I don't know that we can fully capture and capitulate what it means to go through that moment. But in the small glimpse that we have, in the small bit of understanding that we have, God, we are grateful. We thank you for Jesus, that you would send him your son, that you would walk among us, that you chose to live among us and endure misery and mockery and pain and humiliation, suffer rejection and loss and hardship, 
so that we might never be able to say, God, you don't know what it's like. But you have walked the path that we have walked, and you have done so in perfection. And as a result, you have become our perfect Passover lamb, dying on our behalf, so we might have victory in you. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for being our merciful and good and loving king who gave himself up for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.